Irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. You're listening to Razor Riffs with Keith Razor and Alan Lee right here on LA Talk Radio. Excellent, guys. Welcome to the show. I'm here with Tom Rhodes and Rosie Tran. We're in uh, your apartment, which is surrounded by CDs and, and albums. And thousands of books. And thousands of books. Thousands. Have you read all these books? I've read about 50%, maybe. Maybe a little less, but that's still a lot of books. Yeah, that's awesome. Have you listened to all these CDs? Um, I've listened to 90% of those vinyl records. Oh, they're yeah. vinyl records. Oh. Those are vinyl, and the other room are the CDs. Oh, I'm just, uh, yeah. Right. It's uh, like my attention detail. I'm like, holy, oh, that's like, <laughs> I just noticed this. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I, I, I've been seeing a, a, a younger woman, and I tease her that she doesn't know what vinyl records are. That, hey, what are these big picture things with the free frisbees inside? <laughs> But uh, that's just a joke. We yeah. talk about Disney movies. Oh, really? I love Disney movies. <laughs> so does she. <laughs> What's your favorite Disney movie? Um, I think, I mean, the original Lion King. Um, I know wild about all these remakes. This, I hate all the remakes. Yeah, yeah, I feel like they're just milking the franchise, right? Well, I mean, they do it with everything. And it's the superhero movies and, like, every every great film has been remade. Yeah. Uh, there was no reason to remake Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. No reason and, at all. You know. Um, well, you know why they're doing all these remakes? Because I write screenplays, and in my opinion... You to know, make money? <laughs> well, no, it's because I feel that they're doing remakes because they don't, they're don't. they running out of original uh, writers who have original stories. Yeah, I think they definitely run out of ideas. You know, so they're like, oh, let's just remake this and make you know change the script by a line or something. And the people who put up the money, they don't want to take a chance on something new, so let's yeah. just recycle. I mean, look at Netflix remaking all those, like, 70s TV shows, like, one day at a time. And, <laughs> Are they really making that? I liked those kind of shows, but, I mean, do we need a, a, a modern version of it? Yeah, they I should. Think, I think there are original ideas, but they're not, like you said, they don't want to take risks because I hear all, anytime a truly breakup film comes on, they interview the screenwriters and they're always saying, oh, it took 10 years to make, nobody wanted to make it, I was like fighting tooth and nail for someone to read this. So I think there are ideas they are just being suppressed because people just care about the almighty dollar, right? Yeah, absolutely. I had a, um, I had a, I had a beautiful moment, um, I'm old friends with Drew Carey, and I went to a taping of The Price is Right last week. I was just watching that. And uh, I found Utopia, and it's where equality truly lives, and that's because everybody loves money. They can smell money. They're giving away money. And it was beautiful. It transcended race and gender and sexuality. Everyone was on everyone else's side. Everyone cheered for each other, even when someone lost. Yeah. Everybody was like, yeah, you did great. You did great. And it was, and I realized it was just, you know, it's that our our love of money and shiny shit. It, um, <laughs> it was celebrated there. I mean, it was the church of. Um, and the fun costumes don't hurt, right? Do the, they, they no, no, no. That's you're thinking of That's, uh, um, make a deal. Make a deal. Yeah. Don't people wear matching stuff though? Like sometimes if you're like in a family reunion, people wear t-shirts. And people wear that stuff. Yeah. yeah. But, but let's make a deal is the one where they're it's with Wayne <laughs> Brady where they like ask the audience and stuff, right? Like, yeah, and in the seventies they had that show. Yeah. It was hosted by Monty Hall. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, 
I was just letting the folks of right now know it's Wayne Brady. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Price of Brady, don't worry. Most people don't remember. Most people don't remember Monty Hall. Yeah. But uh, would you say, like, with all these, like, it's interesting that we're talking about remakes, but uh, would you say that right, because you had a sitcom in the late 90s called Mr. Rhodes. When are they going to remake the Mr. Rhodes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would you say, like, this is a good time to remake that? Uh, no. I mean, th- there were uh, there were a lot of teacher shows that year. I was unaware of that fact. And um, originally, I wanted to be a public defender lawyer. Yeah. The voice. For the show, when I had a a sitcom deal. And um, they ended up coercing me, saying we had a lawyer show fail. Uh, Can you make Tom a teacher? And I thought, oh my God, well, you know, um, it's the strength of my personality that's going to make a show. And, you know, why not give it a try? And in retrospect, somebody knew there were like four other teacher shows that year. And uh, we were struggling from the beginning. The first three or four episodes were great. And then it kind of became um, the focus was on the on the students. Now, what was that like? Where it's like because it was your show with your name on it, and I know a lot of comics uh, who have their shows with their names. Like I can only think of Seinfeld being the most successful one. You know what I mean? I mean Drew Carey was successful too, but Seinfeld was on for like ever. nine years. Yeah. yeah. So like how I think Drew I think the Drew Carey show might have ran for eight seasons. He was close. Yeah. But, uh, like, how, how does that, like, make you feel to have that, you know, your name and the pressure as a comic, like, back then? Was that stressful? Well, I was young and arrogant enough to, to, think, to think that I could handle it. Yeah. And, um, and I, I think I did a beautiful job. Uh, I had never acted before in my life. Yeah. And I, you know, it's almost impossible to get a pilot made. And then it turned into a series. And I did all that. And... Um, you know, it ran for an entire season. Yeah, I was in Dublin, Ireland in July doing the Dublin, Ireland festival, and Michelle Wolf was on uh, the festival, and I was hanging out with Michelle, and a few people came up to her and went, "I'm so sorry about your show." And I had a great conversation with her. I said, "You know, you, you killed me when I had my sitcom. When it finished, people would come up to me and say, oh, 'I'm sorry about your show.' Yeah. And then you end up feeling bad about it. Like, oh wow, like there's this perception that you somehow failed. But what people should be saying is, hey, congratulations on your amazing human achievement. Yeah. Because it's so for a comedian to ever even get offered their own show, That's a and big then deal. and then to successfully do that show for like a full season." And it not be, you know, a lot of shows are canceled like three or four episodes in and it's loudly trumpeted in the press. Yeah. Um, you know, for a comedian, for anyone to have uh, an entire season of their own show is a great human achievement. Yeah. But then like every, for like a few years after that, every morning radio show I would go do. So what's it feel like to have your show canceled? Mm. And everybody being a little smart ass. And it's like, well, you know. Rock, paper, scissors, I think television beats radio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. Well, it definitely beats yeah. podcasts. Well, I have a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Thank God for podcasts. Thank God for being able to make your own um, um, content. You know, now is a beautiful time to be a comedian. The, the reason why I like podcasts is because, like, uh, I've always dreamt of having my own sitcom, but then, like, as the older I get, you know, I realize that with my humor, it's probably harder. So I started. Because, like, I have 
a form of autism, so it's hard for me to communicate and socialize. So I had to like learn to be verbal and interview my heroes. And I thought that that was just more fun than, you know what I mean? Writing jokes for a story that I didn't know if I could do. You know yeah, that's, I mean, that's, in, that's an interesting uh, viewpoint of yourself, but you should always remember Gary Shandling was really so socially awkward. Yeah. That's where a lot of his comedy came from. And then, was socially awkward. So was... Um, I mean, the, but both of his TV shows... Larry were, Sanders. We're dealing with it. I mean, Larry Sanders um, is remembered, but the one he did before was really great. And he would just... He's, you know, it, it was like a normal sitcom, but he would turn and talk to the camera about, like, look how... Yeah, socially awkward I am at or this Larry moment. David. You know, there's a lot of socially awkward people in comedy. Yeah, Keith. I mean, yeah. comedy. I think, comedy I think it mixes comedy was made for yeah. socially awkward people. But, but what I'm saying is that's why I like podcasts because like it makes me like feel better that I don't have a sitcom. Does that make sense? That does make sense. <laughs> well, I I, I I I don't I don't want to shatter your perception of reality, but you can have both. Yeah. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is because like my yeah. uncle, uh, he he was. Uh, like a guest star in the 90s and stuff and he didn't get his own sitcom until 2004 and he's been acting for 30 years you know what I mean and he just then made it you know so he got his own show yeah he was on Rules of Engagement and everyone thought it was Spade's show but it was really Pat's show you know because like he was the lead you know mm. and my uncle did Seinfeld and The Tick and those shows just never gave him that spotlight you know so that's what I was trying to say because like took him 30 years to get that correct and i wasn't bashing podcasts i have two podcasts <laughs> don't you think that's too too many <laughs> <laughs> socially awkward <laughs> we should have named that socially awkward so tom another thing i like about you is uh you go around the world doing comedy like not just the united states around the world yes like, that's really cool yeah He's just nodding. He's just nodding. <laughs> what's, what's it like? Yeah, what's the question? No, I mean, no, no, just I, that is really cool. Yeah. I agree. Well, I have a question. Does, so does, all, does your American humor translate internationally or do you change sets? <clears throat> that was the question. That was the question. <laughs> well, the, I mean, that, for me, that's the exciting thing about it. Well, first of all, I'll tell you how I got into the international circuits. So um, after my sitcom finished, um, I had a truckload of money. And I looked at that money as my NBC artist grant. And I had, <coughs> excuse me, should have saved some of that money for uh, cough lozenges. <laughs> um, I had lived in New York City once uh, when I was 20, broke, and I always swore if I had money, I would live there in style. So when the sitcom finished, I moved to New York City, uh, got a rock star apartment, and then also I started making. Um, systematic trips to London mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I got in with London through the help of <clears throat> my friend Rich Hall who lived over there and coached me on you know how to get in you know you don't go to the best clubs first you go to the peripheral clubs and you learn what references work what don't you get your sea legs performing yeah. in London so once I got in with London that led to gigs all over England and then all over Europe and then it just kind of snowballed and then for the last 20 years I've been doing the international circuits and London was the key to everything for me. <clears throat> and I find it really exciting. I mean, I think you have to have a certain amount of intelligence to be a comedian to begin with, but you have to have a lot of awareness when you go to other countries like, you know, what's taboo, what's forbidden. Um, in China, 
you are told you can never mention the three T's on stage, Taiwan, Tibet, and Tiananmen. And people have done it like there was a Bjork concert where she started yelling about Tibet and they took her out of the country immediately. Wow. What um, about criticizing <clears throat> the president and stuff? You can't do that, right? You can't make fun yeah. of um, the government in China or, I mean, you can in other countries. I mean, it's. I mean, you're you're also a guest there. Um, it's uh, for me. That's the most thrilling part. You know, you're going to lose a certain amount of your material because it doesn't translate. But what you lose in references, you gain in observation. Mm -hmm. Like most people love when you make observations about their country. But I'm a big reader. I also like to prepare. I really um, get off on knowledge and reading about different countries and things I'm interested in. Um, I played in Mongolia twice. <clears throat> so before I went, I read Genghis Khan's biography and um, had some Genghis Khan material. And, and Mongolians lose their mind if anybody knows anything about their country because they're so remote. And yeah. so like they really appreciate it. Other places like Paris, Amsterdam, I've been doing for 20 years. So uh, and I had love stories and lived there. and So those are so, pretty easy. So I've got material yeah. developed. My new, uh, I just came out with a new album this year, and it's called Around the World. And uh, It's like three and a half hours. It's three hours long. Yeah. It's 40 tracks, and I recorded it in 24 cities around the world. It starts in Paris, and it ends in Jerusalem. And it's all mostly jokes and stories about each city. So um, it's the result of me doing the international circuits for 20 years. Now, what was that like, like making an album? And it took like me two that. years to record it. Yeah. Three and a half hours of material is amazing. Yeah. It makes me feel lazy as a comedian. Well, I think. <laughs> well, you know, when you've, you've been doing, like, I mean, there was a lot of places like Mongolia, I had boned up for it, Berlin, um, Stockholm. There was some countries that, like, I hadn't played regularly. And so before I went there, I made it a point to write five minutes of material on that place. So I was just like Googling information, mind-blowing facts, interesting facts, um, and then reading books about things from those countries that I was interested in. I have a question. How many languages do you know, and, and do you ever perform in the different languages, or do you just do English? Only English. English. <clears throat> and um, like people, friends of mine ask me, you know, how's it possible for you to play in China? Well, I put a rake on the stage, and I walk out, and I step on it, and it hits me in the balls. And the Chinese think it's hilarious, but I, I have to do it over and over and over. It's a very long hour. <clears throat> so, so that's the joke. But the reality is, like, when you play in Japan or China, um, the audience is, is like, ha like, in China, half the audience would be Chinese, but they were educated in Western countries or they grew up in Western countries. Yeah. You know, England, Ireland, uh, Scotland, uh, Canada, America, Australia, New Zealand. There's just so many... Um, places um, and then the, the the other half of the audience is English-speaking expatriates yeah. like I love Shanghai is one of my <clears throat> favorite cities and like in the audience there you'll have Italians and Swiss French but they speak English because English is the international language of business oh. so that's pretty cool like I thought for a moment like you did your entire hour in all these different languages I was like oh that was, oh no that's no. very <laughs> impressive <laughs> no it seems like comedy just didn't translate super well into other languages like my friend went to Vietnam to perform he performed at an expat show where everyone was speaking English 
we're both Vietnamese, me and my friend. And I was trying to even translate my jokes in Vietnamese, and I couldn't even <clears throat> translate them, even though I speak Vietnamese fluently. It seems like the punchline. It's interesting. Set up with- <clears throat> yeah, like with with like I know it was Spanish because my mother's from Argentina. Like in Spanish, you say the thing and then you describe the thing, which makes it trickier. With a set of punchline, right? With the, with a set yeah. of punchline thing, and then <clears throat> my ex-wife was from the Netherlands, and so we watched a lot of Dutch comedians, and she would say that, "Oh, I feel bad for the Dutch comedians because they're limited by the Dutch language." Where in the English language, we have so many more, more words to describe things, uh, expressions, twists of phrase, you know. Um, uh, Vietnam is one of my favorite um, countries in the world. My father served in the war, but... Um, you also shot a special. <clears throat> I made a special there in 1994 called... I shot it in September 94 when Bill Clinton lifted the travel ban for Americans to travel to Vietnam. And I was kind of the the Comedy Central's boy. I could do whatever I wanted. And they gave me a development deal to develop a show. And uh, I made Viva Vietnam. It was an hour special where I went all over Vietnam and got to have fun for the guys who didn't get to have fun. Yeah. And uh, I brought Rock'em Sock'em Robots with me, and I fought people everywhere. We set up a slip and slide on China Beach. It was the world's most dangerous place to set up a slip and slide. And then I think the funniest thing was in Hanoi, there's a, uh, in the parks, older women do Tai Chi in the morning. And we had, in 1994, the Jane Fonda workout tape was really hot. And Vietnam veterans hate Jane Fonda because she went to Hanoi at the height of the war to protest it. So we set up a TV and a VCR with the Jane Fonda workout tape. And in September 1994 technology, we had to run an extension cord for blocks to pull this off. And these women really got into it. They stopped doing the Tai Chi and they were watching. They they didn't know who Jane Fonda was at this point. And then they all did the... Uh, the Jane Fonda workout tape. It was it was really um, it it got great critical reviews. Uh, my dad was really um, proud of it. And then Comedy Central had the premiere at this screening theater in Washington D.C. And they invited all of these Vietnam veteran groups and Vietnamese officials from the Vietnamese embassy. So I had this beautiful Charlie Chaplin moment in the back of the theater listening to these people who were, you know, at war and killing each other, now laughing at my, you know, goofy moment with the Jane Fonda workout tape in Hanoi. So I've since been back twice. Um, that, that, was, that was 94. This, it, it came on April 95 for the 20th anniversary of the end of the Vietnam War. And then um, I went back in 2014 and one of my, I absolutely, I, Hanoi was my favorite in Vietnam because of the, the French tree-lined boulevards. And there's, have you been to Hanoi? I haven't. I'm a bad Vietnamese. I haven't oh been back. Oh my God. My and parents then, have been back twice and every time I can't go because of comedy. I'm traveling. Oh, and there's these lakes, <clears throat> uh, downtown just, Hanoi. There's this one lake where, um, this, this is beautiful mythology because the Chinese have constantly invaded Right. Vietnam. And like 300 years ago, the Chinese were going to attack and this Vietnamese warrior hero, a turtle came out of the lake with a sword and gave him this sword. And he like 
beat and killed all of these Chinese people and ran them out of the country. Was it Leonardo? No. <laughs> I think it might have been Michelangelo. <clears throat> so when you go to Hanoi, I've got, I've, got, I've got one somewhere. It's a little turtle holding a sword is the, yeah. like the symbol. Uh, the lake that John McCain was shot down and landed in, the comedy gig in Hanoi, looks out. You're on stage and you're looking out over the lake where John McCain was shot down. Wow. Uh, probably the worst day of his life. And now uh, there are swan, swan paddle boats for uh, young lovers to <clears throat> yeah. tool around on the lake. We kind of we kind of stole that idea, like at theme parks where you go into that cave on make you know in a boat and you make out. You know, talking about the love boat. Yeah, isn't <laughs> yeah. that what like we kind of stole that idea from other countries? I feel. So there's a really cool gig in Hanoi, and it's all expats. And uh, <clears throat> this, this the uh, when I did it in 2014, this this young kid opened up for me, and he's 19 years old and from Hanoi told me his all-time hero was Eddie Murphy, Delirious. Really? And he wants to be the Eddie Murphy of Vietnam. So he delivered everything like Eddie Murphy and Delirious, but he only had the experiences of a 19-year-old kid growing up in Hanoi. Yeah. You know when you're on your scooter and your, <laughs> and your girl is on the back and somebody pulls up next to you and they're looking at your girl? <laughs> so unfortunately, I went back. Uh, I went back two years ago, or last year, and um, the guy, the, uh, unfortunately, the guy doesn't do stand-up anymore. I was wondering if he had moved on to the Raw album yet. <laughs> but the guy, this English guy who puts on the gigs in Hanoi, used to give motorcycle tours of the north of Vietnam. And I went back last year, and he, I stayed a few extra days, and he took me on a motorcycle journey. And that's where you got in your accident. Got into an accident. I saw something <clears throat> on YouTube. Yeah. That was a gnarly hit. I got really lucky. I was wearing a helmet. My head bounced off the road, and I just skinned up my elbow. Do you, I, I was really, really super lucky. Do you ever get like, because I was in a major car accident where <clears throat> I almost died, and it's unbelievable that no one else got hurt. You know, do you ever get like, and I still get flashbacks like late at night when I, do you ever get flashbacks from that, that accident? No. no. <clears throat> uh, different things, but not that. Um, usually it's stupid things said to people at parties that uh, I'll have flashbacks about. <laughs> God, why did I say that? Uh, even years later. But um, no, but I've, I'm, I'm working on a, a book right now. And it's my, it basically it's, it was inspired by the album because <clears throat> it's 24 cities around the world. And I'm writing about my personal relationship with all of these cities. So... Uh, in places like I almost drowned in Thailand. Yeah. That's a story that's on my um, new album. And um, I was swindled in Shanghai. There's this. Wait, swindled? Like robbed? Yeah, it's this thing where people. It's in every guidebook warning you against it. But I, I'm such a seasoned traveler, I stopped reading guidebooks. So <laughs> I, I fell for it like a rookie. <laughs> Uh, it, when it happened to me, it was one guy and two women, late twenties, and they said they were they were from uh, Shindu. They were in Shanghai just for a few days. They were students. They're pulling a scam. Asked me if I would take their picture, and then they start talking to me, and their English was impeccable. And then they said they were on their way to a cultural tea exhibition. Would I like to go with them? 
And then you go, and you know, and I was like, no, no, I got to meet a friend for dinner, you know. And the guy goes, please come with me, we'll make friends. And that's where the fish hook went into my lip because yeah. the reason I travel is to make friends. Right. So I thought, oh, what the fuck? I'll go with these boys an hour. How long could a tea exhibition be? How much could tea cost? <laughs> and it's a chumpy little exhibition. They say, you know, the jasmine tea is good for your skin. Uh, fruit teas are good for your digestive system. And if you drink black tea, you'll never get cancer. And they're just little thimbles of tea, you sip it, and the woman's explaining it. And then they bring the bill, and it was like 150 bucks. Wow. And I knew I had these, they were all in on it, and they had all swindled me. And um, How do you know it just wasn't a really expensive tea exhibition? Because when I spoke the words on stage that night, People knew I, what you were when doing. I said the words cultural tea exhibition, everyone in the room screamed, No! <laughs> Because like 20% of the people in the audience had fallen for it. And I talked to people after the show, and then I, I've talked to a lot of people who have been to Shanghai and been swindled by this. And so don't go to any cultural tea If someone tells you they're going to take you to a tea exhibition, you look them in the eye and tell them to go fuck themselves. <laughs> so, um, they didn't even offer to pay half of it? Well, I mean, it makes you realize what a good deal Starbucks is. <laughs> but um, the somebody said... You know, you're not a small guy, so they. The one guy told me he goes, they they got me for three hundred, and <gasps> oh other, other people were like, yeah, I got hit for two fifty. Wow. So they they might have been a um, a little cautious with me and only charged me like a hundred and fifty. And then somebody said, did they did they mark you? Did they put something on your? Did you have a backpack? And I said, yeah. Said, what do you mean? Did they mark you? And I, and I pulled out my backpack and I had one of those little red Chinese dangly things. No way. He said they put that on your bag so when you go back out to the street, the other con artists know that you've already been taken. Oh, oh. my gosh. Yeah. So I was yeah. so pissed off about this and I had a few, the next few days, I was staying. Uh, it's this pedestrian shopping street that leads to the Bund. The Bund is where the river is, <laughs> where all the, the magnificent view of the skyscrapers. <clears throat> so the next day I went, this was, this was, I don't know, like 10 years ago. No, maybe seven years ago, something like that. But anyway, I, I, was, I was still filming with my video camera all the time because I, I, I had dreamed of making a comedy travel show. Um, so I just spent an afternoon walking up and down the street and every time these different people would come up to me and talk to me, I would just start filming. And they were like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Because like they, they don't China like, doesn't yeah. fuck around with criminals. Yeah. And whatever underworld mafia is running this thing, these, you know, they're recruiting innocent people of every, you know, it was like an attractive woman in her 30s came up to me. And once I... <clears throat> um, started filming her or she saw a cop she ran off it was like some some teenagers wow. and it was all cultural tea exhibition so there's it's any you know man woman or child is gonna make whatever yeah. 50 bucks off of bringing in the dumb tourist I could actually relate to that story I mean I've never been uh, outside the country but I did once have dinner with Andy Dick 
Wow. <laughs> I, who, who, who knows how that turned out? So we go to the restaurant, right? And Andy's like, you know, the sweetest guy. And then all of a sudden it's a 700 bill and he just jets out, you know? So I know. He I, left you with a $700 bill? Yeah. But, you know. It's, You're kidding. No. But, you know. But, really? Yeah. But I'm just saying, like. Well, that's even worse. Yeah. You're, that, that you're is a comedian. Worse. Yeah. But, uh. But yeah, I was you just... know, you get fucked by a strangers one thing. <laughs> to get, to get, Andy, to get, to get fucked by uh, to get fucked by someone in your own tribe. That's a that's even more weighty. Everyone's yeah. got an Andy Dick story, don't they? <laughs> well, I know Andy. I don't, unfortunately. You, you don't have an Andy Dick story. No. no. Oh, he crashed my sister's birthday when he was in his crazy cocaine days. Mm. You know, it, he has a bad rep, but here's the one thing I am about a comic is, first of all, if you do comedy, I, I automatically love you. That's how I feel. You know but I, I mean? I've been burned on that. I, there's a couple on, comics, I don't know. I've been burned on that viewpoint many times. I've been burned. Where you think like, oh yeah, my, it's the brotherhood and the sisterhood, and we're all like in the same tribe. No. And there's, there's a lot of people who don't feel the same way. I've been burned. I've lost my job to a comic. I've lost my girl to a comic. I, I know that feeling. That's true. He has but, but what's it gonna take, Keith? Well, here's the thing with Andy. Like I've known Andy since I was seven hundred bucks. Come on. Yeah, but he's not as bad as a person as people say he is. He's actually he he does have a sweet heart. You know what I mean? What would what would have been the deciding factor? A thousand? Is that when you would have turned on him? Well, I think if I didn't know him, yeah. you know, when I was eight, then that I would have turned on the seven hundred. But since I've had history, you know, he's did he watched, pay you back? No. Oh my gosh. But I mean, he probably doesn't even remember, you know? But I'm just saying, like, I know, like, he's a good guy at heart, despite what people say about him. Hmm. Yeah. I'm probably. Yes. I'm sure uh, Hitler's friends were very, very complimentary of him as well. I used to You've got to know him. I used to have the philosophy. He's, a, well, he's too. a great guy once you get to know him. I felt like all comics are like, we're like this camaraderie, right? We have this camaraderie, but some comics, they're not in the comic. Camaraderie. Yeah. 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 It always kills me when someone's like arrogant and doesn't um, talk to other comedians on a show or, yeah. This. Uh... Well, that can change too if your career doesn't go the way you plan. Because I know a couple of comics that used to be super cocky and then their career didn't go as planned and now they're super nice. <laughs> Rosie Tran. <laughs> Shut up. No, not me. I won't name names. <laughs> no, we don't name names. But the, Except another... for Andy Dick. We'll throw. <laughs> Why everyone has an Andy Dick story. Anyways. So, so, Rosie Tran, do you get upset if anyone ever calls you Tranny? You know, I was just having this conversation Because people like, friends night. of mine will call me Rosie sometimes. So, I used to get it a lot when I first started doing comedy. Hosts would introduce me like, Rosie Tranny. <laughs> or whatever. But now that trans rights are such a big thing, people are like scared to do it. Yeah. Which is weird. I feel like I got all of the bad tranny jokes with none of the bathroom privileges. So it's like yeah. I get no benefit for all the the shaming and the nicknames. But no, no one calls me that. A question I Super had for host. you, Tom, is uh, when you do comedy in the States and then outside of the States, because I know you as a stand-up. Like, how do, like, when you're outside, or do you, would you say your fan base is more outside the States? Mm. Uh, I don't know. Like, there's, you know, there's, there's, I got great places in the States where I've always had really solid uh, fans. Atlanta, Chicago, San Francisco. I didn't mean it like that. Um, I meant it like you're an international name. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think like people who are comedy fans um, know me and like me. I mean, I wish I could sell more tickets in some uh, cities in America. Yeah. Definitely. 
Um, but I'm really grateful for what I have. I know a lot of younger comedians. Um, I'll talk to them. Like, you got the life I dream of. I want to be where you are. I mean, you know, I'm old friends with Brian Regan. He's got frustrations oh, at, at, at his Regan. level. Yeah. You know, no matter what level you're at, there's like shit where you're like, God, why does that have to be like that? You know, but you got to enjoy where you're at. And I mean, you know, I, I think I've done pretty good for myself. Yeah, yeah you have. Um, I, I love my life. I like that I have, you know, it's interesting, like, you know, sending out emails, trying to book stuff for next year, and um, the, the, uh, surprisingly, um, this club that I wanted to um, to get rebooked at, the guy, you know, just um, went cold on me. Yeah. And as disappointing as that was, then I just got offered um, work in Japan. Yeah. So, you know, you got to you got to balance things out, you know, yeah. um, you know, it's funny, like with your podcast, like I know for me with my podcast, I've asked good friends of mine who are famous and they said no. Yeah. And then there's other people who are famous who were, were like, oh, my God, of course, I'd love to do it, Tom. Yeah. You know, it, it just there always seems to be like a balance in comedy for me. Like there's a percentage of doors that are closed to you and then there's a percentage that are open. And, you know, you got to be grateful for you know, the life you have. And I'm, you know, fortunately, like with my podcast, I would talk to people all over the world. I also do like, um, I talk about books that I'm into. I did a three-part thing on the French Revolution. <clears throat> I just did a three-parter on Lord Byron, the, yeah. uh, uh, the king of the romantic poets, really interesting, debaucherous dude. Um, but also, like I said, I'm, I'm writing the book about um, my experience traveling the world and my best stories traveling the world for 20 years, my album that I just came out with. Um, I'm really proud of that. And not every comedian can go play in all these places. And, um, and then with, with my live, live album, uh, the people at SiriusXM recommended that I make a clean version of it. Oh. So that took a, a few months doing the notes on that, but it just got finished, and yesterday was posted up everywhere. So there's a there's a uh, an hour clean version of Around the World now. Oh, that's awesome! So yeah. you know, so like, do I wish I had a television show? You know, like Anthony Bourdain. Do I wish I had a lot of money? Yeah, was stinky rich. Um, yeah, but. Uh, the life I have is pretty beautiful because I can make art out of, um, you know, my unique experience of traveling the world as a comedian. Yeah. And not everybody, not everybody can do it. Not everybody has the talent to be able to do that. You yeah. know. Well, uh, the good news is I'm a man of my word. So if I ever like sell a screenplay or something, there's a part in it for you because I'm writing a, a detective movie. But like I heard that you don't like it when people when bad stuff happens to children, so you might decline the role. <laughs> but there's a part in it for you. You're going to be the cop who saves the children. You really know a lot about me. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that, Keith. And uh, well, I've been trying. To I have to. I have to thank years. you. The reason we're sitting here is because for the last five years, you your persistence. <laughs> And reaching out to me every few months. He's and, very persistent. You know, you finally broke me down. I didn't know you. And then I, I met you a couple times at the improv. Yeah. And then I thought, oh, well, you have a kind face. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, how, it, 
It was your persistence is, is He's whatever. very persistent. How hard is it not to do the British accent when you're in the UK for a while? I think, yeah, well, I mean... I it, feel like I just hear the British accent and I want to break out in British accent. Well, I, I agree British with you. British is awesome. I think, I mean, there's no funner hobby than talking with an English accent. Can people yeah. tell if you're American? Have you perfected it? No, no, no. no. And, I, and I, well, I did it. There's a joke on the album on one of the London tracks that... Uh, um, well, that... It's interesting, so this is the joke, it's on the album. Um, it's interesting to me that very often you see English actors playing Americans, but very rarely do you ever see an American playing an English character. And that's just because we can't do your accents. Yeah. I know I personally do the worst English <laughs> accent ever. Because no matter what I try and say, I always end up sounding like the stable boy who needs to be punished. <laughs> You're perfect for this role. <laughs> Great. I would love to be a detective. Yeah, you talk to his life. I would love to be a detective. Especially the, the, the detective that knows some shit. Yeah. Is he, is he, does he have to be a British detective? Yeah. That's what oh, he, okay. No, no. No, not with that accent. No. That's like... <laughs> Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins had Rosie a better Rosie just anything. runs over the punchline, and then she's like, wait, I got it, you know? <laughs> but no, the, the thing about persistence about me is... Um, He's very persistent. I am very persistent. <laughs> this is actually kind of scary saying, but, like, I don't really know the meaning of the word no. He doesn't. Which, <laughs> like, it, I understand that sounds really creepy to say, but just I just don't... I think there's ways around a no. You know what I mean? So like, well, you know, I mean, I didn't know you, and yeah. then also I was married until this year. Yeah. So uh, being on the at, road half the time, yeah. and then being home having to do, you know, yeah. married couple things, I didn't have too much time to and I figured, snap off for people. But now I that I'm divorced, that was, I got all the time in the world. I figured that was the case because <laughs> the tweets were very flirty. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> No. <laughs> I know, but... I never flirt with anybody else. <laughs> I was joking. But, uh, but no, so, like, I think that it's also a very good thing as a comic to not understand no, too, because in this business, there's a lot of rejection. Yeah, well, I think it was Oxford or Cambridge University in England about five years ago did a study that the thought patterns of comedians and uh, psychopaths are very similar. Oh, boy. Uh, because... Um, <laughs> A normal person, like barriers pop up, fears and things like that. And to be a comedian or a psychopath, you have to like keep pushing forward against, <clears throat> um, you know, normal things that uh, people. Well, a lot of people. So I've, I've heard a lot. So of I mean, I think I like the the. I'm, I'm trying to turn that into a compliment. That yeah. I, <laughs> as a comedian, because you have to you have to fight through the fear to get on stage to do it, and then like. You know, we're in this new modern era where you can do your own podcast, essentially your own, you know, show. And then, you know, I mean, it takes balls to approach somebody and ask them to be a guest. And then, the, you know, you could potentially be rejected. And, you know, yeah. when we've all got self-esteem issues and all that kind of shit doesn't help, you know. I have uh, two more questions I want to answer. And these are like long questions, I think. One. Okay, did I cut you off though, Rosie? You yeah. did, but that's okay. What was it? Oh, I was going to say, I hear a lot of people saying, oh, comedians are crazy. They're like, not psychopaths, <clears throat> but I've heard people say they're crazy. They have a lot of issues. But I think comedians are actually healthier because I used to work a nine to five job. 
and all the people I worked with were very repressed and never talked about anything. And I feel like comedians with podcasting and shows, we talk all the time. Yeah. So all the comedians I know, I think are healthier than normal people. I don't believe in that, you know, comedians are crazy bullshit. I think like in the 80s, there was a lot of drug abuse and alcoholism and people were pretty wild and everything but um, I think I think comedians are are, are more well adjusted yeah. than the normal person I agree with you 100% especially I mean just seeing when I was working in 95 the repre- the repression and the lack of communication my some of my coworkers had it was kind of scary yeah and then I guess you know the ass kissing and the backstabbing to advance and everything I mean there's a lot of petty little bitches in comedy but I think for the most part I think people are pretty solid human beings, yeah. you know? I think they're very trustworthy, and, um, you know, like we were talking about, I've always thought we were, like, this exclusive group of fighter pilots, you know? That's the way I always looked at it, like, yeah. you know, oh, you were brave enough to get on stage and be a comedian at whatever level. I respect that. Yeah. So, um... But then when you find out they're doing your jokes, you don't respect it. You know? Yeah, not at all. <laughs> not at all. It's never happened to me yet, but, you know... Uh, one of the questions I had, this is, uh, I heard you don't drink, but I heard someone tricked you into drinking. No, not true. That's not true? Uh, I stopped drinking, <clears throat> I was a balls out, heavy partier, wild man for my whole life. I kind of thought that was part of being a comedian. Yeah. Um, and, uh, my father was killed by a drunk driver in 2009 my little sister died of breast cancer in 2011 so 2012 2013 i had stopped drinking for pleasure i was so heartbroken over losing the people i loved the most in life i just um pretty much stayed numb and i you know like when facebook memory pictures pop up from six seven years ago it's terrifying i I, I had this fat white guy alcoholic face with a big bulbous booze nose yeah and I was a pretty um, decent looking fellow when I was younger you still are and um, I thought I, I really started to look like shit so vanity was a big reason I stopped <clears throat> but I blacked out in Philadelphia and fell off of a bar stool and I busted my head open and I got six stitches and the next day I saw so much ugliness in the mirror um, I thought I was put on this earth to do better things than to be drunk every night. Yeah. And I also, I also knew that it would make me a better comedian. Yeah. So that was the main thing. My whole life, the reason I've traveled the world is to have experience and stories to make me a better comedian. Everything my whole life has been in the advancement of becoming a better comedian. So uh, a lot of my favorite comedians like Bill Hicks, I knew they did their best work after they stopped drinking. And I thought, you know, I want to go one year and see what it's like. And in that year, I got so much done. I thought, well, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go ten years without drinking. Yeah. And uh, like I always loved wine. I think after ten years, I might have a wine. Um, we'll see what happens. But in 2000, I quit drinking January fourth, January first, two thousand fourteen, <clears throat> and then. August 2014, I did the Edinburgh Festival, which is, you know, English comedians love to drink. And I was at an after party. Somebody, um, you know, one of the clubs for comedians, uh, somebody offered to get me a drink and I asked for a Coke and they brought me a Jack and Coke. Okay, so maybe that's what I heard. I took a sip 
And I knew what it was, and I just said, I just put it down. Oh, okay. I had no. It wasn't like, oh my god, it touched my lips. Now <laughs> I have to go to a bar, and drink for a fucking no. I, <clears throat> I, I made the decision like a like a man. I, yeah. I'm not gonna drink. And then when I was in Mongolia, I'm such a fan of Genghis Khan. Um, his favorite drink was fermented mare's milk, horse milk. And it's, it's a lightly alcoholic beverage. And the Mongolians still love it to this day. And so I took a sip of the fermented mare's milk just because I wanted to see what Genghis Khan's favorite drink tasted like. And it is as disgusting as you would imagine <laughs> fermented mare's milk. It tasted like if you dropped a shot of scotch into a glass of milk. Ugh. Yeah. It's like a white Russian with no sugar, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I took a little sip of that just to taste it. But 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 other than that, um, no desire. I think what you said was really important because you're saying... Because a lot of people, I think, also a lot of comics think you have to be like this party comic or tortured comic that's to make... To be funny, <laughs> you're saying that when you were more clear-headed, you were able to create more jokes. Yeah, but I mean, I've been a comedian for 35 years. <clears throat> so I quit drinking five and a half years ago. So, I mean, you know, I had 30-plus years of being a wild man, heavy drinker. But also, I mean, you know, when you're younger, you know, it helps give you confidence when you're terrified, certain situations. I started out on the southern circuits playing really tough one-nighters and stuff and um you know i was glad i had booze then yeah you know and i you know and i don't i don't look bit down on what anybody's doing it's everybody's on their own path and um you know uh i just thought you know we're here to evolve as human beings yeah. and we're just here to make as <clears throat> much lasting art as we possibly can that's all that we leave behind is you know books podcasts you know we're all going to be dead one day so that's that's another reason why I wanted to do a podcast because like when I'm old and stuff I could like listen to all my heroes talking to me because hopefully I become a huge successful headliner like that's the goal but at least I'll be like you know what at least I got to interview my heroes yeah, I mean, look what Judd Apatow did. He, the, the, um, the, where is it there? Sick in the Head. That book is fantastic. He started interviewing comedians when he was a teenager. Yeah. Just like this, just sitting down and recording it. <clears throat> and the, That's uh, more impressive, though, because he did it on a book. But he didn't know, he, <laughs> he didn't know it was going to be a book yeah. at the beginning. He was doing it as a radio show in the beginning. Yeah. He just did, he did audio recordings. Yeah. It's just someone had that. I mean, you maybe you'll do that in the future one day. Yeah, I was making a bad joke. <laughs> <laughs> what that he did it with a book? Yeah, well, he wrote, no. Yeah. Okay, failed. O and three, excellent. I laughed at a couple of your jokes. Yeah, but it's nice when your hero doesn't laugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was encouraging you. I was saying you could be the next Judd Apatow. Uh huh. Yeah. Thanks. And with that detective movie, we're going to go very, very far together. Kat. And his sitcom. Yeah. Don't forget. Oh, yeah. I also told her I'd give her a sitcom. But... I'm a sitcom wife. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> you could be my sitcom dad. <laughs> I love it. All right. Cool. Yeah. Well, you guys would be a great sitcom couple. Yeah. 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 Awesome. So then the last question I had is, what is your biggest fear besides death? Because I think everyone fears death. I'm not too afraid of death. Um, <clears throat> I've had a pretty great life. Um, 
but what am I afraid of? Um, well, I think there's a difference between afraid and fear. I think fear is like something you just can't do no matter what. Uh, afraid. Yeah, I mean, and comedians specialize in breaking through fear. Yeah. You know, like I remember I was in Malaysia and I was telling this guy about my dad being a helicopter pilot and like flying in to these, you know, save soldiers on the ground and he's taking heavy fire and and, uh, and and the other comedian goes, oh, you mean what you do every night? And he was a comedian and he's being, but, and it's not that kind of fear, but you, you know, yeah. you, you do have to break through fear sometimes, you know, you, the comedy store, you're, on, you're going on after someone who's, who's famous and they're destroying the place. Um, I went on after Amy Schumer at the Comedy Cellar a couple years ago and it was, I went on after Chris Rock at the Comedy Cellar like 20 years ago and then both of them standing ovations when they go on stage standing ovations when they leave and then the, oh here's your next comedian <laughs> you know I mean there's just there's, there's things in life and in comedy where you're you're always breaking through fear but like a real fear um, um, see I'm an older man yeah. you know I'm 52 now and fortunately, most of my theories about life have been proven wrong. Um, when I was younger, I was afraid of being an ignorant hillbilly. But I've spent my life traveling the world and educating myself. So I um, don't think I could ever be an ignorant hillbilly unless I got hit on the head with a pipe or something. Um, uh, you know, when uh, when my wife and I broke up at the beginning of the year, you know, I thought, oh, I'll never be loved again. Yeah. I met a, an amazing woman a few months ago. So, um, I don't know. I don't know what I'm... I don't think... Um, yep. I mean, I, I, my fears do not immobilize me, and they've all turned out to not be true. So That's great advice. If you could take back, like, go in a time machine, go to the past, would you meet James Brown absolutely yeah 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 I would because he means so much to me yeah and then you think oh you'll have another opportunity to meet the guy I, I that was that was fear that yeah. kept me from meeting the guy uh, I opened up for James Brown in uh, James Brown for the folks at home <laughs> 1996 at the Canoctai Harbor Resort uh, about two hours north of San Francisco <coughs> and um Lifelong hero. I'm from the South. I've always... Where are you from? I'm from a... a I grew up outside of Orlando, Florida called, in a town called Oviedo. <clears throat> and um, now it's grown up and it's very suburban. But when I grew up there, it was like a small citrus farming village with one stoplight. Like Orange County used to be like that, yeah. you know, years ago too. <clears throat> but um, I, I grew up worshipping James Brown and, and I, I still listen to his music to pump me up. There's... I got two biographies well his autobiography and then his biography yeah that's the one he wrote <clears throat> and then there's another one that just came out a couple years ago and you didn't get a chance to meet him even though you're opening for him? I chose not to because um, I had met a few heroes that, that disappointed me and I didn't want oh yeah that's he was so sacred to me I didn't want to um, soil my image of the young Virile James Brown. I didn't want to go backstage and he's some old guy sitting in his underwear and accidentally see through his pee hole or something weird like that, yeah. you know, that I'd never be able to get out of my mind. But, <clears throat> you know, when you're young and you're idealistic and you think stupid shit like that. Yeah. So now I definitely would have met him. 
Uh, I was gonna say if I was if I was you know your friend back then and I had wisdom I would say go meet him because I've met my two heroes. Uh, I actually opened up for you know I I opened up for Norm for about five six years. Cool. And he became my best friend, you know. And then I met John Cusack. I loved his uh, <clears throat> that TV show he had on Netflix. I don't I thought it was so dumb that they pulled the plug on that. John Cusack? No, no, no. Oh, no, Norm. Norm. Show. Oh, Norm. <laughs> and 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 I, now and I graduated high school in 1985. Yeah. So um, uh, I grew up with the John Cusack movies. Oh. You know, say anything. Yeah, I I met John Cusack because what he does now. It's not stand-up comedy, but this is, like, something really cool. He goes to theaters, you know? Like, theaters, like comedies. Do, yeah. You know? And he sells tickets, and he plays one of the movies, and he does, like, a Q&A after. Nice. You know? So, he sold out the Fox Riverside uh, Theater, like, and he just announced it like that, you know? And I'm so obsessed with, like... I'm not obsessed with dudes, but if I was gay, I would totally sleep with John Cusack. <laughs> He's the coolest guy in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So I bought a ticket, right? And I tweeted. Uh, I don't know if you follow me on Twitter, but I have a thing of over-tweeting. So I tweeted all these questions. Uh, and my name got picked for the questions on the helicopter. Oh, nice. And there's like 20 Keith Reza questions. And John Keith says, like, I, who, is Keith Reza even here? <laughs> I was like, I'm Keith Reza. <laughs> <laughs> so then I was like, oh, I have, like, and this is a sold out theater. And he's like, okay, well, do you have an, a question on Twitter? I was like, yeah, will you do my podcast? <laughs> and he said yes in front of the entire crowd. Cool. He hasn't done it. But, and he's been tweeting at him every day but, ever since. Well, How many years has it been? It's only been like three months. <laughs> okay, well, it took, it took five years for you to get me. Yeah. So. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, like, that, that day was like the most magical day ever. You know, and I got a picture with him and stuff. And so I think that if you would have met James Brown, that would have, like, really made your heart glow. You know what I mean? Yeah, but, you know, there's no, I guess there's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I should have met him. Yeah. So, and I really love the guy. Yeah. And still do. But um, that John Cusack thing sounds great. There was um, five, six years ago, Val Kilmer was doing Mark Twain. Oh, yeah, and I saw that show. I saw it, 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 the, it next to Sony Studios. I forget the name of the theater. Uh, I saw him at the Steve Allen Theater. Oh, nice. Which was like, I don't even think it's there anymore, but he just, no, they popped, tore that down. Yeah, he just popped in and he was dressed like Mark Twain. And uh, Alan Lee, it sucks that he's not here because he actually sat right by him. And he didn't know it was Val Kilmer. He thought it was just some old dude. Huh. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Mark Twain fanatic. And, and uh, you know, who doesn't love Val Kilmer, too? Yeah. But um, he did, it was really cool because Mark Twain, I think, is was the, he, he was the first stand-up comedian. I agree. Stand-up comedy was born in 1866 when he gave that first lecture in San Francisco. Um, on the Sandwich Islands, which we now call Hawaii. So I've got loads of, there's a Mark Twain section on the wall over there with all these books. And there's a great book called Chasing the Last Laugh about Mark Twain did a worldwide um, tour to uh, pay off his debts. He was a terrible businessman. But um, Mark Twain would go out <clears throat> and look at the audience before he went on. He'd puff it on his cigar and he'd size up the audience. And it was really cool that, that Val Kilmer did that. Yeah. Before the show started, 
he's dressed as Mark Twain, and he comes out and he's just sizing him up to see who he's he's working to. Uh, the you know I heard that he he wanted to do a movie about uh, yeah. as Mark Twain, and then unfortunately his his health went into the toilet. Val Kilmer, so I don't know if it'll ever be done, but that performance was so cool and then at the end he stayed on the stage while his makeup was being removed and he he did a Q&A yeah. and it took like a good hour and a half for them to remo remove all this you know makeup and the wig and all that and and then you know over the course of an hour and a half he transformed back into Val Kilmer yeah. but it was awesome to have that time and the whole audience asking him all these questions and stuff yeah well, Tom, we're running, we're out of time. Is there anything you want to plug, like your social media or anything coming up? Um, my album, Around the World, I think uh, everybody should have that and uh, yeah. have it on shuffle in their music. And there's a uh, clean version. And now it. there's a clean version. So all it. the kiddies could listen to it. Yeah, and TomRhodes.net is my website, at underscore Tom Rhodes on Instagram and uh, and I, I don't I don't fuck around with Twitter too much. I, I think most of my activity I scared you. Most, <laughs> most of my activity on Twitter in the last few years has been <laughs> answering uh, your request to do this, this podcast. So most of my Twitter activity Tom's really, like unfollow. It's great to, it's block, great block. It's, it's great to finally meet you. <laughs> yeah. No, we met at the improv, but yeah. you know what I mean to talk to you. Rosie, what about you? You got anything coming up? Um, I do November second. Oh yeah, at the rec at the rec room. Yeah, we got. We're, I was going to ask Tom to do it with Lafatonics. Let's uh, do it. November second. Right. Yeah, you in town? Let's talk off off air. Off air. Uh, <laughs> okay. Right. And I'm on Twitter at Funny Rosie. All right, guys. Uh, thank you guys so much. Subscribe, rain review. Tom, thank you so much. I love you very much. Thanks, Keith. I, I appreciate the love, and I give it right back to you. Uh, I appreciate you doing it. Hopefully, you come back within five years. Thanks, I will, and thanks for uh, making me a detective on your movie. Yeah, I'm going to send that to you. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you guys so much. Uh, love you, Rifters. Bye. You're listening to Razor Riffs with Keith Razor and Alan Lee right here on LA Talk Radio. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to the show. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed it, Please subscribe, write, and review on Apple Podcast. Give us some feedback. Good, honest, terrible, doesn't matter. Also, follow us on social media. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Razor Riffs. I am also on Stereo if you would like to chat with me there. www.stereo.com slash Keith And on Cameo, www.cameo.com slash Keith If you enjoyed the show, please... Send us a donation on the Anchor app. We really do appreciate it, and we'll rift with you again soon.